You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. How many veterans do we have here today? I see a couple. Well, this being Memorial Day, how many of you know what Memorial Day is about? It's not just a day off. It's a day off to honor people who gave their lives for our country. So thank you so much for, you know, people make sacrifices that we benefit from that we never are even aware of. I was actually looking online this morning at um, the, uh, the beach at Normandy where so many people died to um, overcome the, uh, I got, you know, Nazi Germany and all that insanity. So anyway, thank God for our soldiers and those who have given their lives. We want to do something a little special this morning. We're going to give everybody their offering back and send you home early. No, that, that's not really it. It's <laughs> sort of stunning there, wasn't it? The kingdom hath come. Oh, me. I want to invite um, Stephen Giordano up and... Um, I want Stuart from our board of directors, and I have some staff people here, Christopher and, um, and Andy Squires, and we are going to ordain Stephen this morning to the ministry of the gospel, and it's a great privilege, and there's several reasons. Ordination in its um, strictest sense means to stretch out the hand to acknowledge and the acknowledgement is basically over acts and functions of ministry that are already occurring. A lot of people think, well, now that you're ordained, you can go minister. Well, no, true ordination is recognizing the ministry you are involved in. And I have known Stephen how many years? Almost nine. Nine. Yeah. Eight wonderful years. Nine years. No, come on. That was a joke. These guys, are, you got to pick up the pace out there, folks. <laughs> bringing out some of my best stuff and uh, just need to catch up. But um, Stephen was a graduate from a school of ministry. How many years have you worked in a ministry? Various ministries, maybe uh, 12 total. 12 total years you've been. I know he's been to Africa for extended periods of time. Um, he's taken ministry teams to Europe, and he helps lead our ministry team. And so because of all that, and because we know what kind of person you are, and because we know the heart you have for the Lord, and the gospel, and the church, and for how you demonstrate a life well lived, we're going to lay hands on you. Come on up here, folks. And we ordain you, Stephen Giordano, for the ministry of the gospel, and we do that in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we charge you, Stephen, to never turn back from the call of God on your life or from the relationship you have with Christ Jesus. Be a reflection of the kingdom culture 
not of the culture of this world. And be happy. Be joyful. Be full of the Spirit of God. Amen, amen. Is this on, Christopher? Anybody have anything they'd like to say? Or a prayer? Here comes a prayer. <laughs> Stephen, I just bless you in Jesus' name. We just we speak to the rivers of living water that are Amen. flowing out of you. We just tell them to flow, flow, flow. We just we ask Holy Spirit for a fresh filling, God. Will you come and fill Stephen up yes. right now, God? Fill him with your presence. Just fill him anew. And I just pray that he would walk in greater levels of power and authority, God. Yes. And he would demonstrate your kingdom, God, wherever he goes. And I just thank you for what Stephen has meant to me and Courtney and um, yes, in our family, you. God. Just, just a man who's steadfast and committed to you and just always ready, Lord. Thank you for the wisdom that he walks in. And thank you for his heart for other people, God. Just the way that he loves others and puts others ahead of him, God. I just bless that in you, Stephen. Amen. Yep. We're going to continue this morning um, studying the book of Ephesians. Last week, last week we had um, uh, Ray Hollenbach with us, and um, some of the things he talked about leads right into a study of the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, which is um, really a very challenging chapter to read in the face of the sort of culture of the United States because um, one of the things I was thinking about, well, I thought about a lot of stuff over the weekend. When I come to you this morning, I can, I can wear several different hats. I can represent several different perspectives of, of ministry or authority or responsibility. Let me give you an example. Years ago, um, I've been married 42 years, and early on in my marriage, my mother, um, I'm sorry, the Lord, at least this is what I felt like he did, he told me I was responsible to get my father-in-law saved. Well, there were, there were several problems. The first one was he didn't like me. <laughs> Go figure. And we began to have kids that changed some, but he was, he was a country guy and I was a city slicker and I was educated and he, he was, uh, I had a high school education. So there were just the stuff that goes on in relationships, but, uh, he was, um, served in the second world war and had some, uh, terrible experiences, uh, that he wouldn't talk about and he really would not. He would not talk to me 
about the Lord. He was not at all interested. And um, so as time rolled on, and this goes back, I think, 10 years, he, um, he developed uh, some uh, vascular problems, and he was in and out of the hospital. And then one morning, uh, I was leading a men's meeting. Uh, had a big thing going on. I was in charge of it. But Donna called. That's my wife, for those of you who may not know. She said, Dad's in the hospital, and they, they don't think it looks good. And so I thought, well, I need to go talk to him. And so I gave the meeting over to somebody else and left. And Donna and I went up there, and he was in a hospital bed, and, of course, couldn't, he couldn't talk. And um, I was thinking, I wonder how I could help him uh, with the Lord, because he was clearly not a Christian. And so everybody happened to leave the room at one time, which was really good for me. And so I looked at him. We called him Papal. I said, his name was Cecil. That's how Christopher named his uh, their little boy. I held him by the hand, which was weird. And um, I said, Papal, I'm not here this morning as your son-in-law. I'm here this morning as someone who represents the Lord. And I said, getting saved is so easy. It's like falling off a slippery log in a rainstorm because all the work's been done for you. Jesus died for your sins according to the Scripture. Say according to the Scripture. According to the Scripture because that's the substance of everything we are as a church. You're going to hear that a little bit later. So I said, Jesus died for your sins according to the Scripture. He has made a provision for your forgiveness if you will accept his free gift of salvation this morning. And I said, if you want to do that, squeeze my hand. And boy, he, he clamped down on my hand. And he was gone within two hours. And so when I'm making that point to make this point, I'm not coming this morning as like a prophet to denounce people's sins. I'm coming as a father who's concerned about a family and a generation of people who are tempted and challenged to more... um, Who, who can begin to look more like the American culture with all of its compromises than a kingdom culture who look like Jesus, which is what we're, what we're called to do and called to be. And so last week when Ray was here, he read out of Matthew 28, and he, just, he did such a great job. Um, verse 18, if you want to turn there, look at something. Uh, it's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came close to them and said, all the authority of the universe has been given to me. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of it because this was one of the points Ray made. If Jesus has been given all authority, are you living your life 
as though he has all authority in your life, in every area, morality, honesty, communication, all the different areas of our lives. Well, that's, that's a pretty significant challenge, but that is the challenge of what it is to be a believer in Jesus. And so I really appreciated the way uh, Ray presented that. But we need to ask ourselves that question. Are we living under the authority of Jesus in each area of our lives? And then I want us to read this chapter in Ephesians um, together. But if you've been here for any of these, um, any of these teachings, you have got to remember one of the primary foundational things Paul teaches, which is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift from our wonderful heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, all because he sees us wrapped up into Jesus. And so what Paul says is everything, let's say this together, everything I need has been provided. That, so what's the elephant in the room, or what's the question that begs us this morning? Why am I not accessing it? Fair enough? Fair enough. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons, and the ones I'm going to cover this morning aren't the only reason, but I think it's something we really, really do need to take to heart. So, Christopher, if you'll put that, that overhead, and I want us to... Uh, read this together out loud. And um, one of the definitions of out loud means words are coming out of your mouth. Okay? Because some people read out loud silently. (laughs) I don't think you can, though. This is the group participation part of the meeting. Actually, how about the home groups? The home groups were really good this year, too, weren't they, this recent? Recent bound, yeah. That's where you really get to know people. It's hard to get to peop- know people from the back of their heads, isn't it? You need to sit somewhere where you're actually looking at them. That's what we do with these home groups. So here we go. You ready? Be imitators of God in everything you do, for then you will represent your father as beloved sons and daughters. So the title of this message is "Imitators." Be Imitators of God. Verse 2. And continue to walk surrendered to the extravagant love of Christ, for he surrendered his life as a sacrifice for us. His great love for us was pleasing to God like an aroma of adoration, a sweet healing fragrance, and have nothing to do with sexual immorality, lust, or greed. For you are his holy ones, and let no one be able to accuse you of them in any form. And then he meddles a little further. Guard your speech. Let's stop right there. What did he say? Guard your speech. Forsake obscenities and worthless insults. These are nonsensical words that bring disgrace and are unnecessary. Instead, spill out in your words. For it has been made clear to you already 
that the kingdom of God cannot be accessed by anyone who is guilty of sexual sin or who is impure or greedy, for greed is the essence of idolatry, how could they expect to have an inheritance in Christ's kingdom while doing those things? So there's a lot to say about this. The, the first thing is temptation relative to sin is not equal to the practice of it. How many of you in here never tempted? Yeah, the Bible says of Jesus, he was in all points tempted, yet without sin. So what we're talking about here is a lifestyle of sexual immorality, lust, greed, the th- being an insulter, you know, all of the Facebook things people can be drawn into. And so it says here, the kingdom cannot be accessed by anyone who is guilty of these things. And so here's, here's the point. What is the basic essence of the kingdom of God? For the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but what? Righteousness, peace, and joy. And so I don't believe the God I know sees us do bad things and says, I'm going to cut them off. I believe what happens is practicing those bad things destroy our capacity to enjoy and walk in righteousness, peace, and joy. So I think we need to pay close attention to that. Now, Paul's words are so descriptive of our generation. Sexual immorality, lust, greed, unguarded speech, obscenities, worthless insults. A few of them are flying around Washington, D.C. right now, perhaps we speak probably. Nonsensical words that bring disgrace and are unnecessary. In our relationship with one another, I think we need to do everything we can to be an encouragement to live right. How many of you, how many of you are listening to me? Everything we can. Let me, let me read this. You know, now, now that some of you probably feel beat up or maybe convicted, I don't know, but I'm getting convicted and I've been working on this for a couple of days. Let's consider the lineage of the Messiah and other heroes of our faith. You want to do that? Adam and Eve got us into this mess. They sinned and fathered the entire human race. I really believe that. I believe in a little Adam and Eve. I believe in a little garden. I don't care about the fruit. I don't think that was the issue. It was disobedience. It's not, it really, it's not trusting God. See, a lot of people don't get delivered because they just don't trust God. Do you know what I'm saying? And he wants you to. Noah got drunk and cursed one of his sons. Now, I'm reading the Hall of Fame of Faith here, ladies and gentlemen. Moses was a murderer and a stutterer. Elijah ran from a woman and was suicidal. 
Abraham lied and put his wife in a compromising position. Isaac did what his father did. Now, that's a scary thing, ladies and gentlemen. If you think about the way we are tempted to live, do you realize that your children will live that way only worse as a general rule? No man is an island, really. We don't live in this world alone, so to speak, without responsibilities or things that affect other people. Sarah first forced her servant girl into the desert to die. Jacob was a con man, had big relational issues. Jacob's sons sold their brother into slavery, among other things. Joseph was proud. Gideon was fearful. Samson had a lust problem. Rahab was a prostitute. Samuel had ungodly children. David was a murderer. The woman at the well had five husbands. Mary Magdalene had seven demons. Peter denied the Lord with oaths and curses. Paul was a murderer and a religious fanatic. And then there are others. Leah was ugly and cross-eyed. Martha was a worrier. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist dressed oddly and had a very strange diet. (laughs) Timothy had a weak stomach. Lazarus was dead. (laughs) And yet every one of these people with all of these issues became righteous by faith and found a way in a relationship with God to overcome those things. Praise the Lord. Is there a praise the Lord in the house? Come on. Come on. And you thought you were in a mess. Now, these are the heroes of our faith. And what this does, it doesn't give us permission to behave this way. It simply shows us that people who have done amazing things have done it facing much more serious problems than you have to do it because God's merciful and he wants to help us. Who's happy about that? Come on. This is, this is good news um, posed as bad news. Now, we need to take to, heart, take to heart the words of Jesus and the apostles. Now, the apostle John gave us a simple way to deal with our sins. This is 1 John chapter 1. Uh, I don't have an overhead if you'd like to look that up or write it down. And John starts out by talking about how intimately acquainted he was with Jesus. And then he begins to talk about what people who are intimately acquainted with Jesus, how they handle their own personal failures and sins. And it would be the way Jesus told John this is the way it should be done. And so it starts like this. John says about Jesus, We saw him with our very own eyes. We gazed upon him and heard him speak. Our hands actually touched him, the one who was from the beginning, the living expression of God. This life giver was made visible and we have seen him. We testify to this truth. The eternal life giver lived face to face with the father and has now dawned upon us. So we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard about this life giver so that we may share and enjoy this life together. 
For truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus, the Anointed One. We are writing these things to you because we want to release to you our fullness of joy. And that should be the experience of every believer who has, um, to the best of their ability, dealt with their issues. This is the point. He goes on. This is the life-giving message we heard him share, and it's still ringing in our ears. We now repeat his words to you. God is pure light. You will never find even a trace of darkness in him. If we claim that we share life with him, but keep walking in the realm of darkness, we're fooling ourselves and not living the truth. But if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, we share unbroken fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. Let's say that together. And the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. If we boast that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and are strangers to the truth. But if we freely admit our sins, that's a novel approach. But if we freely admit our sins, when his light uncovers them, he will be faithful to forgive us every time. God is just to forgive us our sins because of Christ, and he will continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm reading these verses from the Passion Translation. might be a little bit different from what you've read, but it's all accurate. So here's a question I would have. Why did John write this way? Why did he do this? So that we can be free. So that we can share and enjoy this life together. So that God can release to us the fullness of joy. Let me ask this question, and you don't have to answer it, but let me ask it and ask yourself, how many of you have committed a sin and felt the burden of it? Yeah, let's go. How many of you have committed a sin and you felt the burden of it? How many of you, after you confessed it in the sense of taking responsibility for your sins, felt that burden diminish or completely go? Okay, let me ask this question. Before you repented or before you were honest or before you brought it into the light, how happy were you? Un. I got saved in high school, and when I went to college, um, I got off the farm a little bit. How many of you? And I'll tell you why. The only Christian guys I knew in college were sort of pansy. I don't, that's a terrible thing to say. They're sort of mama's boys. And I thought, God, if I've got to hang out with them, serve the Lord, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and so, you know, I didn't, I really didn't honor the Lord there for a while. And um, go to these parties, part of this fraternity, the whole, the whole scene. And I didn't have a car, but my grandfather lived two blocks from my dorm. He let me borrow his car. So I would drive to whatever it was, you know, picking up the girls and, you know, going to the parties. And, and then when I would come back late at night, I would park it in his driveway and I would walk 
two of the most miserable blocks home, I'm sorry, back to my dorm room under conviction. Because I knew I wasn't living right. But, but to be honest with you, I did not have a vision. I did not have a vision for who I was. Do you understand what I'm saying? I didn't have a vision for what uh, the kind of friends I could have that um, multiply a rewarding life. You know what I'm saying? I, I didn't see that. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. The elders were smoking on the sidewalk between Sunday school and church. There was no Holy Ghost. I'm sure he was there, but he hid. I never, the only emotion I ever really felt, the only sort of stimulating emotion I ever felt was I got all worked up the weekend John F. Kennedy was assassinated and they were talking about it in the service and I got up out of my chair and went forward to a non-existent altar call for what reason, I have no idea. They never had them. So I didn't have a vision. I did not know who I am. And ladies and gentlemen, living the way Paul details in Ephesians chapter 5 is simply not who you are are. You know, we, we don't like to think that God can be angry with us, do we? Because of the wrath was poured on Jesus, the different verses. But you know, Paul actually says later about misbehavior, for this cause comes the anger of God upon the rebellious. That's New Testament. We don't like to think that way, but I think we have to understand why he could get angry. He could get angry if you're leading somebody astray. Or he could get angry, not necessarily at you, but at the fact that you were missing the mark of who you were created to be. He could be angry that you've chosen a lifestyle less than the lifestyle of someone who is royal in, in birth. You know, when you were born again, you were born of royal seed. You were born of God. So, let's take a look at um, Jesus in action. Let me go back. So, John talks this way about how you handle your problems, how you handle your sins. And listen, I, I don't want anybody today coming up and telling me everything they did wrong. I want you to go tell somebody else. Maybe the person you did the wrong to. Wouldn't that be something? Maybe you can apologize. How many of you like the word apologize? I love the word apologize when I apply it to everybody else. <laughs> apologize, 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 apologize. You know, one of the big problems Jesus had with the Pharisees is they were never wrong. But Jesus was very compassionate towards people in, in turmoil, in trouble, who knew they were in turmoil and trouble and needed help. He was so Compassionate. Matter of fact, woman caught in adultery. This is John 8, 3 through 11. Let's look through here. Wow, I've got an hour and 15 minutes left. I think we can make it. Do not laugh. You didn't laugh earlier. Don't laugh now. Um, 
In the middle of Jesus' teaching, religious scholars and Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. What's wrong with that picture? What does caught in the act imply? Takes two. Everybody knows. Well, most people know that. Takes two. Caught in the act. Where was the man? Women, you should be angry about that, frankly. They let him off because their goal was not to help anybody. They were willing to expose this woman in a terrible way to trap Jesus. That is what it is to be religious, ladies and gentlemen. You're not concerned about the person in a mess like the Pharisees. You want their sins exposed for some ulterior motive. Ulterior motive. So then they, the Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we caught this woman in very act of adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death a woman like this? Tell us. What do you say we should do with her? Verse 6, they were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the laws of Moses. But Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Angry, they kept insisting that he answer that question. So Jesus stood up and looked at them and said, let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. And then he bent over again and wrote some more words in the dust. Upon hearing that, her accuser slowly left the crowd one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest with a convicted conscience. Until finally Jesus was left alone with the woman standing there in front of him. So he stood back up and he said to her, listen to how he addressed this woman. Dear woman, say that with me. Dear woman. What do you hear in those two words? You hear the heart of God. Dear woman. Where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? Well, guess who was still there? Jesus was. See, being condemned doesn't really help you with your issues. How many of you? The Bible says some save with fear. Some. You, I don't know how that all works, but, but the threat of damnation or eternal punishment or hell or however all that works usually is not sufficient to make a person love God for some strange reason. But Jesus looks at her and he says, dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. Jesus said, then I certainly don't condemn you either. Go and from now on, be free from a life of sin. And so Jesus didn't say, I don't condemn you. I know you're doing your best. He didn't say that. He said, I don't con condemn you. Go and from now on, be free from a life of sin. But here's what we have to recognize she left that encounter knowing 
someone she didn't know before she was living that lifestyle. And his name is Jesus. And we have got to to begin to realize all over again, we cannot cure ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot repent enough to change ourselves. It takes a work of God that comes by faith. We need Jesus touching our lives. We really do. Jesus touched that woman's life, but what he didn't do was condemn her into repentance. Dear woman, how well has this accusation worked to save you? She said, basically not at all. He says, well, I don't condemn you, but don't live that way. Go and sin no more is basically what he said. You know, this particular Bible story is left out of a lot of Greek, original Greek translations. How many of you realize that? No, nobody, me, somebody. Andy, you realize that, right? Yeah, it's left out of some Greek. Do you know why? It's because the, the, the forgiveness and grace of God is hard to understand. It is. See, the whole idea about grace and mercy, how many of you like grace and mercy? Wave at you for grace and mercy person. Grace and mercy precludes you have done something worthy of not deserving help from God. That's the foundation of grace. But, but it's been turned in. We can live any way we want to because there is grace. Well, no, you can't. That doesn't work. God is not mocked, the scripture said. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And that's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. If you choose to live in a way that you know is not right, it's going to cost you something. At some point, you're not going to be willing to pay. And that's not a threat. That's just reality. It really is. So Jesus treated that woman in a tremendous way. Now, Andy, thank you for giving me all this extra time. Turn to somebody and say, take a deep breath. I want us to look at another episode between Jesus. These both happen to be um, with women, you might think, well, why was Jesus working over the women? I think women were the only people willing to turn. All the men were just still doing their stuff, maybe. I don't know. I'm helping you, ladies. I'm, on, <laughs> I'm a man, and I'm on, I'm on your side. Trust me. Um, okay, here's the setup. Jesus goes to a village called Sychar, and He's weary, he's thirsty, and he sits down at this well, and he's in the land of the Samaritans. Now, you, you may know this, but Samaritans were considered by Jews to be like a half-breed um, race. And uh, a Pharisee would have nothing to do with a Samaritan. They were unclean, basically. But here's Jesus. He sits down at this well, and a Samaritan woman comes to drink water. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink of water. So she was surprised, and she said, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? And Jesus said, if you only knew who I am 
and the gift, somebody say that word, the two words, the gift, and the gift, everything God gives us is a, if you try to earn it, you destroy the, because everything God gives us, he gives us as a undeserved, and if we try to deserve it, it no longer becomes a, if you only knew who I am, Jesus said, and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink, and I would give you living water. And so the woman says, well, where are you going to get water? You don't even have a bucket. That's basically what she says. And then she says, do you think you're greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, that you could give living water? Who do you think you are? So Jesus says, well, if you drink from Jacob's well, you're going to be thirsty again and again. But if anyone drinks the living water I give them, they will never thirst again and will be forever satisfied. For when you drink the water I give you, it becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit, springing up and flooding you with endless life. So what do you think the woman said? Give me this water. Let me drink that water so I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come back here to draw water. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus presents this amazing picture of this supernatural water. And he promises this lady, if you drink the water I give you, you will never be thirsty again. So how does she respond? Give me that water. And so what does Jesus say? Go get your husband and bring him back here. She's thinking, what's living water got to do with my personal lifestyle? So she says, but I'm not married. How many of you know there's a difference in what's true and what's the truth? Yeah, a lot of us say what's true, but we ain't telling the truth yet. <laughs> this is what she was doing. I'm not married, but my goodness, she can't mess with Jesus. <laughs> he says, that's true. For you've been married five times, and now you're living with a man who is not your husband. You have told the truth. So then the woman wants to engage him in a religious debate. She says, you must be a prophet. wonder why she thought that. You must be a prophet. Anyway, Jesus winds up saying to her, listen, let's don't argue about where to worship, but realize this. Here's who God's looking for. He's looking for people that will worship him two ways. How many of you remember what, what the two ways are? In spirit and in truth. He didn't say you worship him in spirit and in doctrine. He said true worshipers worship him how? In spirit and in truth. When this woman was told by Jesus about the terrible condition of her life, something so significant happened to her that we find later she left her water pot at the well and went back and told everybody about Jesus. Now, why did she leave her water pack, 
water pot back at the well. Why did she take it? She was thirsty. So she's down there. She takes it. She's thirsty. She runs into Jesus. Jesus tells her, hey, I know what you're all about. I know. I know. I know. Five husbands. The one you have now you're not married to. You're not living the way you need to be living. But through this discourse with Jesus, she leaves her water pot at the well and she goes back and starts telling everybody about this wonderful man named Jesus. Why did she leave her water pot? She was no longer thirsty. Something in this encounter with Jesus where she could have the truth about her condition in the presence of someone who cared about her but knew all that stuff she had done began an internal transformation that made her no longer have the kind of thirst that drove her to those men and those illegal situations. She wasn't thirsty anymore. And here's the remarkable thing. Historians say about this woman that she This makes no sense, but I'm just telling you, ladies, listen to this. The Greek Orthodox Church, some of the church in the West, recognized this woman as a saint and have said she became an apostle of Jesus and went throughout the known world preaching the gospel along with her sons until she was martyred in Rome by Nero. Her name was Fotini. That's what happened. It all began when she could tell the truth. But it was all began when she could tell the truth to somebody that loved her, warts and all. And that's who Jesus is. That's who he is. But until you can be honest with him, the water won't flow. The spring won't come. You're still hiding. And the problem is you've divided yourself from God, but when you separate yourself from God, you can also separate yourself from the flow of the righteousness and the peace and the joy. And the marvelous thing about God is he became righteous for you until you could figure out how to behave better. That's the glory of the gospel. He didn't say, be righteous first and I'll reward you. He said, no, I will be righteous on your behalf through the death of my son. And I will prove that it worked by raising him from the dead because I'm not necessarily condemning my son, but I'm condemning sin in my son's flesh so that you no longer have to be subject to its power or its curse. I'll do that for you until you can figure out how this Christianity works. I will hang on to you. Just tell me the truth. Somebody said, tell me the truth. Just tell me the truth. How did this woman address this lady? He said, believe me once again, dear woman, the mercy of God is so, so tremendous. So, Jesus offers her a free gift. She leaves her water jar because her encounter with Jesus initiated, initiated a process inside of her 
where if she understood it, she would never again be thirsty in the way that would lead her into a damaging, destructive lifestyle. That's what Jesus will do for every one of you. Guess what? I can't. I can't do that for you. I can tell you about it, but he can do that for you. Here's a footnote about this woman that was at the well. Although she's unnamed in the biblical account, church tradition identifies the Samaritan woman to be a woman named Fotini. Extra biblical references identify her as being an apostle of Jesus, an evangelist, and a martyr. She was the first New Testament evangelist to win a city to Jesus. How many of you have heard women can't be in ministry? Glad Jesus didn't feel that way. Think about that. She, she went in, in like 15 minutes from, from an adulterous lifestyle to winning a whole city to Jesus. Who does that? Jesus. Do you have trouble with it? Get over it. That just tells you how marvelous this salvation is, man. We have sold it so short. This puny little, oh, you Christians are just, they're just stupid and you can't ever get anything right. And we have. God's so pitiful. He can't help anybody. He doesn't care about anybody. He's mean vindictive, he's spiteful. That sounds more like the devil to me than God, right? But you talk to some people, they're confused. So here's the question I have today. What culture are we going to represent? Our American culture is deteriorating rapidly. It could turn around, really. It could turn around. We could have so many people meet the Lord it could turn around. Has that ever happened again? Three times in American history. Three times. Could it happen again? Well, yeah, if you want it to. Do you want it to? You want to believe for it? I believe for it. I believe there's going to be another great awakening. That sounds really stupid, but I, hey, here I am. That's what I, I wrote a book. I wrote a book. I have nailed my colors to the mast. Thank God it's not a bestseller. So then everybody won't know I'm wrong if I am. No, I just mess with you. But what kind of culture are we going to reflect? An American, listen, American culture today looks nothing like the American culture I was born in in 1951. Trust me. You can't tell the resemblance. The only true resemblance is we still speak a form of English. But that could change. Ask yourself, listen, challenge yourself to take yourself to task and ask yourself, what culture am I really representing? And then I want to ask you this question. What do you want for your children? What do you want for your neighborhood? What do you want for the city and and the state? Well, actually, the two states. We live in two states here. What does a kingdom culture look like? It's grateful. Donna was talking to me the other day about generosity, and she said, Robin, do you know what generosity is not? And I said, what is generosity not? She said, generosity is not 
simply giving what you should give. That's not generosity. That's fundamental. Here's what generosity is when you give beyond that from your heart. That's what generosity is. What does a kingdom culture like? It's forgiving. It's forgiving. I mean, did you hear about all these crazy people that are spiritual leaders over the generations and generations? My goodness, there was nothing. Listen, there was no sin. Somebody in that crowd did not commit on more than one basis. So God forgave them. Let's, let's say God forgives. Let's just say that. God forgives. Does God forgive mistakes? No. What does God forgive? Sins. I see a lot of people don't follow me here, but as long as you just made a mistake and didn't do the wrong thing that you shouldn't have done, you're still not taking, you're, you're saying they made me do it or it was society or genetics. No, 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 you did it. Own up to it. Because you can only disown what you own. You, own, you can only disown your past by owning it. But see, if we don't understand who we really are, we let the, we're living in the rearview mirror. We let the past identify us. None of us should identify with our past. What's the kingdom culture like? It's forgiving. It's repentant. It's humble. Never ask the Lord to teach you how to be humble. There's an easier way. Just pay attention to the stupid stuff you've done. What's the kingdom culture like? They're imitators of God. What's the kingdom culture like? They're learners. They're disciples. They're learning about Jesus, and they're letting the life of Jesus dwell in them to the degree that they're being transformed. What's a kingdom culture like? A kingdom culture respects the Scripture. The Bible. I mean, you have to deal with this. If the Bible is not to you legitimately the word that God has given us, there's no basis for anything we believe that's not just simply debatable at every turn. You have got to make your mind up at some point if the Bible has authority in your life. And let me tell you the way human nature works. Human nature is so deceptive. It says, if I choose to believe that, I got to make a change. Therefore, I'm going to decide that's not true. Here's the only problem. God holds you accountable to what he thinks is true. That's just a little small problem we may all have. He holds us accountable to what he knows is true. And he knows who is deceiving themselves? Oh, man. Everybody happy about that? Well, guess what I just read when I read that kingdom culture? Grateful, generous, forgiving, repentant, humble, imitators of God, learning of him, respect the scripture. I have been giving you a picture of your truest self and my truest self. See, this is really who we are. We're that kind of person. We've been born of that kind of seed. We have been filled with that kind of spirit, but we're in a war zone. 
We're all in this together. How many of you know we're in this together? I don't have an easier time than you do. The only reason I do is if, if I've learned things from the Lord and it helped me quit. But, but no, we're all, we're all dealing with the same issues, the same problems. So let's do this. Everybody that has committed a horrible sin this past week, no, I'm messing with you. <laughs> I knew it was coming. No, let's just stand together and pray. Let's commit ourselves to Jesus. How many of you want to do that? Well, Lord Jesus, we just commit ourselves to you today again. Lord, you see right through us. You see right through us. You see right through us. You can look all the way down as far as you care into who we are and what we've done. But then, Lord, I've heard this. When we repent, God forgets. So, Father, we're asking that you would um, release the reality of honesty and repentance and wholeness into our midst on a whole new level. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, I pray that everybody would just have a great Memorial Day rest of this weekend. Father, visit us. Visit us in power, Lord. Visit us in our homes. Visit us on the jobs. Visit us here, Lord, but Show yourself strong in our behalf. We want to know you more and more. And we just pray this in, in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.